podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Eddie Gibbs and welcome once again to Off The Wall, the podcast here on Anfield Index. We'd like to give you a small flavour of some of the content available over on the paywall side of our channel at Anfield Index Pro. So last week we brought you in various segments uh, the outtakes from our AI lockdown live event. That was a free video event that we did on Facebook and uh, we broke up all the segments, put them in two places. They're on this uh, podcast channel for free and we also have them on YouTube as videos. Uh, just search for Anfield Index on YouTube if you want to watch any of those uh, the event proved hugely popular. We had more than 8,000 Liverpool fans from all over the world tuning in to watch the likes of Jan Molby, Steve McMahon, and uh, our AI Pro regulars all chewing the fat on uh, how they've been coping without football uh, during lockdown. Some brilliant questions, so thanks to everyone for them. And that was all to the accompaniment of music from the likes of Ben Burke of A Boss Night and the marvellous Rag and Muffins, who recorded a, a few songs exclusively for us as well. I think we can safely say that that won't be uh, our last crack at live video, and we'll look to schedule our next event in the not-too-distant future, perhaps around the... Uh, a league title win or something or something cool like that so let's see what happens there uh, just keep it peeled to our, uh, our twitter account or discord for uh, for where, what events we may have in future video wise uh, so today we're going to continue on off the wall with part two of Jan Gorski Mashir's superb jumpers for goalpost series this series is truly some of the highest quality podcast production that we've ever had on the channel and we thank everyone who got in touch to say how much they enjoyed uh, volume one uh, over the, the last week or so this series, of which there are six parts uh, to date, offer a narrative history of Liverpool Football Club and the city of Liverpool since Bill Shankly took over the club in 1959, and it's set against the context of the event's culture and the times those involved lived through. Before we let Jan uh, loose on your ears again, I also want to share some of the content that we've released over on the paywall side of the channel in the past few days. As AI scouted, uh, Carl Match and Dave Hendrick are said before they've been absolutely prolific uh, during this lockdown period and this week they've released uh, part one of a multi-part series examining some of the bright young prospects from around uh, European football and I think they start with the Eredivisie uh, this week in Holland so uh, so do uh, do look out for that one uh, I don't know how these guys watch as much football as they do or know so much about uh, young football as they do but I'll save you watching and that will uh, be one of the, some of those names that you can perhaps jot down and keep an eye on when you are watching uh, football that's uh, outside the of Liverpool and the uh, and the Premier League. There's also Scouser Tommies. Uh, Jim Boardman and Mike Nevin were back with another slice of Scouser this week. They're looking at how football and TV has evolved through the decades. So from those early days of uh, grainy pictures and... Uh, single shot cameras to what we see today with the likes of Sky and BT with cameras of all sorts, VAR and the like. So uh, do uh, do check out the uh, most recent episode of Scouts of Tommy. There's also Retro Reds, Mike Nevin's other show, and uh, he was joined this week by Carl Kopak for part two of the Sunnis years, a nostalgic look at Graham Sunnis' time as manager of the club, a period that I'm sure many Reds fans have tried to blur from existence. Uh, but they do do it uh, justice, and it is well worth a listen. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the first two parts, and... Uh, it brought back a few good memories as well as a few uh, of the not-so-good varieties, so do go and have a listen to that. There's also the interview. Jim Boardman uh, interviewed uh, Jim Beglin in two parts, uh, and we hear about Jim's early days in Ireland through to his uh, his breakthrough at Liverpool, uh, his career with the Republic of Ireland, and then that broken leg and how things unfolded very quickly with his uh, transfer to Leeds and early retirement for the game. But then we hear about how he went on to uh, succeed as a, as a broadcaster and uh, commentator. Now to enjoy all of that content and much, much more 
All you have to do to get AI Pro absolutely free for 30 days instead of the usual seven days is to sign up. And all you have to do is head over to AnfieldIndexPro.com. There is zero obligation to continue after your 30-day trial, and you can cancel at any point. If you decide to stick around, then of course we hope you will, then the cost is only £3.49 per month, or £39.99 per year. Now, we'd love your feedback with any of the shows we do on either Anfield Index or Anfield Pro, and the best way to do that is by joining our free Discord community. A thriving community runs underpinned by healthy opinion and debate, and the place to go to do that is AnfieldIndex.com forward slash discord that's d-i-s-c-o-r-d anfieldindex.com forward slash discord alternatively we are on the regular socials uh facebook twitter and the likes uh for facebook just type in anfield index and uh, on twitter there's two handles there at anfield index or at anfield index pro so without further delay here we go it's our jumpers for goalposts volume 2 podcast expertly narrated by the brilliant jan gorski machine <laughs> City History Pods. On this episode, we cover the years from summer 1960 to summer 1963, a period of great change and upheaval at Liverpool Football Club in the city itself, Britain, and indeed the world. There are no guests on this pod, just my dulcet tones to tell you by way of a radio-style documentary essay where Bill Shankly's foundling Liverpool team would go next, set against the rapidly changing context of the city and times in which they lived. The intro music was my version of Shaken All Over by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, widely considered to be one of the first true UK rock and roll bands, released in August 1961, it was the band's only number one hit. Johnny Kidd himself, whose real name was the rather less showbiz Frederick Albert Heath, was sadly killed in a head-on collision on the A58 near Bolton in 1966. And now, the late news. To be precise, an hour late. <laughs> Spike Milligan in a social commentary throwaway aside, once presciently remarked that Queen Victoria finally died in 1960. This was an acute, if only 90% accurate statement. What he was referring to was the troubled yet surprisingly swift emergence of a new Britain, largely driven by the post-war generation. It evinced new goals, new attitudes, even largely a new world which began to show itself in or around 1960. Britain, including Liverpool and her other large industrial ports and cities, was still slowly emerging from a dank and dreary post-war climate of austerity, a world war in which the UK, despite being a leader on the winning side, had almost bankrupted itself in fighting, the price for standing alone when Europe collapsed in the wake of the Nazi war machine being that it would only finally finish paying back loans to America as late as 2012. Nevertheless, as exports began to pick up to the rebuilding European market, and the slum clearances and repairing of bomb damage was slowly progressing at home, Britain, at that point a leader in jet aircraft, television, 
and various other high-tech manufacturing was tentatively emerging from the repressed grey and brown shadow nightmare that was the 1950s into a better, brighter, more opulent, but what as yet nobody could know would become arguably the most socially revolutionary, colourful and culturally diverse period since the Renaissance. If that sounds a little overstated or far-fetched, consider this. At the end of the 1950s, there was only the bare bones of an infant industry of expensive international flying, only a handful of Western nations had developed even basic television and broadcasting, and there was no international telecommunications industry. Even making an international telephone call meant for the most part logging a call with the international operator who, if you were lucky enough, would call you back several hours later to tell you that your call could now be put through. Or, if you were unlucky, it could be days. Or not at all. And it could cost a week's wages. Please hang up and try again. Please hang up and try again. There was no satellite communication, just the USSR's Cold War trump card of Sputnik 1 bleeping away deftly to itself in low Earth orbit and Yuri Gagarin was still almost 18 months away from being the first human, briefly, in space. If you wished to get hold of someone in a hurry, even if in a neighbouring town, the most reliable way was still, as in the 1890s, to send a telegram. Britain's leading early computer scientists bravely predicted that by the year 2000, Britain alone may have as many as eight computers. These room-sized mainframe wonders had less processing power than a 1970s Casio pocket calculator. Middle-aged and older people still fawned almost uniformly over the monarchy, and such was the culture of social deference that ordinary people on the whole still kowtowed to anyone in a suit. And the aristocracy and upper middle classes still ruled and ran the country, the middle classes managed it, and for pittance the working classes unquestionably knew their place. This attitude was later brilliantly and infamously satirised on the Frost Report in 1966 by Messrs Cleese, Barker and Corbett. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. <laughs> I am middle class. <laughs> I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him. <laughs> Because he has got innate breeding. I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. <laughs> so sometimes I look up to him. I still look up to him, because although I have money, I am vulgar. <laughs> but I'm not as vulgar as him, so I still look down on him. I know my place. <laughs> In 1960, the beginnings of an antithesis to, and a dropping of, this unquestioning deference were first made widely visible by two young working-class and two young upper-middle-class performers and writers from, of all places, Oxbridge, nominally biting the hand that fed it, in Beyond the Fringe, the young men being Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett and Jonathan Miller. Although the satire boom of the early 60s that tore into this culture of deference was short-lived, it set the pattern for the upping of the comedy game in Britain forevermore. Monty Python's Graham Chapman would later recall that the satirical and absurdist sketch-flowering of the early 1960s had the same absolutist effect on British comedy as the coming of sound had on silent movies. Despite some late convulsions, music-hall comedy, which had ruled the roost for over a hundred years or more and provided much of the early black-and-white TV schedules, was very soon all but dead. Despite this looming deferential apocalypse, politicians were, in 1960, still not grilled about their policies, their lives, motives or actions, 
and was shown the near bootlicking respect by both society and media that in the Middle Ages a serf may have shown to his lord and master. However, to return to the final metaphorical and moral death of Queen Victoria, as alluded to by Spike Milligan, a dizzying change in all those things listed above and much more besides was about to begin, and once the genie was out of the bottle, it was never to be put back in again. In Liverpool, the drive for change was coming from a less direct, less openly confrontational, and far less obvious source than the powers that be would recognise. In this respect, Liverpool was, as ever, the iconoclastic city of the Union. The city as a whole was still in decline. Tall, soot-blackened, once-glorious Georgian and Art Nouveau sandstone buildings hung like giant spectral tombstones in the frozen winter fogs and sleet of 1960. Liverpool was still fuelled by half a million coal fires, industrial chimneys on the docks, Tate & Lyle, State Express, and the plethora of new factories that sprung up as the post-war economy geared slowly up to a nominally peaceful, if surreptitiously Cold War setting. Then as now, even in a period of profound austerity, there was plenty of military spending done under the counter. Whole Liverpool families existed and lived on £8 a week if they had a man with a decent job, as, apart from skivvying, nursing, teaching, largely in primary schools or being a factory packer, for despite their utterly essential work in keeping the war economy ticking over little more than a decade earlier, few women were still truly welcome in a skilled workplace. Their place, if it could be afforded, were still determinedly seen as in the home and to make as good a marriage as they could. All this, too, was about to change, though the social stigma of having a child out of wedlock was still likely to see you having that child taken away in many cases. Ever since, single-parent families have still found themselves demonised and socially outcast by the politics of the right, who often look back to the fifties as a cultural-political nirvana, rather than the hell that it was for the rest of us. There was as yet no race relations or equal pay laws, still over a decade away. Homosexuality was still deemed officially illegal and unnatural, and the death penalty was still in place despite several of the more recent hanged prisoners being later found innocent and the public mind being set against it. All this was of particular effect in a city as culturally, racially and philosophically diverse as Liverpool. The shackles needed to be thrown off. Very few working-class children could afford to even look at the possibility of higher education without the aid of some benefactor by way of a scholarship. Most, including my own elder adoptive brothers, left school at fifteen and went into the same factories, pits and docks as their fathers, who would have a weird with the foreman. An expectation that lay ahead down the line for me, and which I would determinedly resist. Often married by eighteen, a parent by nineteen, and still living with parents until a council house or new flat could be attained, Often after years of waiting, the life of a young working man was hard, devoid of expectation and socially stifled. The life of the young working class woman was, if anything, somewhat worse. The pressure was building. The very patrician, politically reactionary and complacent Tory government, under the rather crusty edifice of the aristocratic Harold Macmillan, had been in power for almost a decade, and Britain as a whole, then as now but more so, still considered itself a world power. Foreign policy and an already redundant idea of global importance in a Cold War setting took precedence over social inequality at home. The last vestiges of empire were seeping away as former colonies and dependencies sought and attained independence, leaving Britain to its own designs and a hastily converged Commonwealth. Many of these newly independent states would thrive. Even more would undergo a troubled, often blood-soaked infancy and childhood.
Life in the city and port of Liverpool was hard and largely hand-to-mouth. Men still queued up at the dock gates as they had done since the 1920s, at least in the hope of a day's casual work, though with the rise of the trade union movement since the end of the war, this iniquitous situation was at least fading slowly into history. Unemployment was also slowly on the decline, but overall, life was unremittingly grey, generally unhealthy, and the future was a dream for those lucky few with means, at least on the surface. For underneath the meandering drab life of the day-to-day, -day, the children of World War II, the later famed baby boomers, formed the intellectual and culturally hungry working and lower middle class of the city, who were finding each other and sowing their own haphazard, unplanned and largely coincidental revolution. At that time, invisible to the great mass of the city's population, a cultural, musical, literary, political and sporting foment was gathering pace. Natural enthusiasm, that's the whole thing. It's the greatest thing in the world, natural enthusiasm. You're nothing without it. Nothing. At the equally down at heel Liverpool Football Club, by the turn of the decade, Bill Shankly had been in charge for less than a month. Full of enthusiasm, ideas and great plans for the future, his start was nonetheless inauspicious. His squad loaded with tiring, ageing journeymen and pros. The club juniors, or reserves, there were no academies or substructures back then, had some promising young players who he would turn to rapidly, but also a share of players he could see were never going to be of the standard required for the far-reaching future he envisaged. First, however, came the not inconsiderable task of returning the club to the top division. In his first game on Saturday 19th of December 1959, Shankly's Liverpool lost heavily 4-0 at home to Cardiff, with Shankly sitting with an expression of concern, depression and mounting rage in the dugout. The side he inherited were utterly outclassed. The only bright spots for him in the game were the performances of the ill-served, recently promoted junior Roger Hunt, hard-fighting wing-back Jimmy Melia, and Hunt's unusual partner up front for that game, Ronnie Moran. Shankly would say afterwards, Naturally I'm disappointed, but it's just as well that I've seen the team give an off-form display in my first match. I've learned quite a few things this way. He had indeed, and knew there was much to be done. It was at this point that Shankly, in a short spate of minimal firing and rearranging, consolidated and formalised his backroom staff. Unlike today, he did not bring a retinue of underlings with him from Huddersfield. He liked the work being done with the juniors or reserves and kept their tall, gruff and humorous and very scouse manager Joe Fagan, a recently retired lower league player who'd only been in the job a year and drew him closer into his orbit. Another to make the cut was the former Air United manager and current first-team trainer, a former goalkeeper and native of Aberdeen, Reuben Bennett. Bennett was known to be both compassionate and yet as hard as nails, almost a mirror of Shankly himself and to possess a sharp eye for talent. The final member of his backroom staff was a former and distinguished Liverpool player and self-trained physiotherapist named Bob Paisley, a soft-spoken County Durham man, already famed for being able to spot and diagnose a player's injury just from the way they entered a room. Although Shankly had told these three men on his first day in the job that he would not be bringing in his own people, it was only after the Cardiff humiliation that he sat them down, confirmed their positions, and with them as his lieutenants set about mapping the coming five seasons. The Liverpool board were about to find out just what their new man expected from them in the transfer market, and they were, for the most part, outraged by his demands. However, in Chairman Tom T.V. Williams, one of the few directors of any club anywhere Shankly ever had any time for, he had a staunch and driven ally. It was Williams who wanted Shankly for the job years earlier, and pushed the agenda to land him this time. 
and if he had to fight his own parsimonious board to get his man the funds needed, then so be it, though the initial efforts would be wearing and frustrating for both men of vision, with the board refusing to sanction a move for Dennis Law, Shankly's favoured protégé and striker from his previous club, Huddersfield Town. This was to be the first time, barely a week or two into his tenure, that Shankly threatened to resign, accusing the board of being self-satisfied and happy to see the club run into the ground, which he was not going to allow on his watch, and he would walk unless they turned their mind to that fact. The board was suitably chastened. It would not be the last time, and only Shankly ultimately knew how serious he was, though Bob Paisley and Reuben Bennett believed him. Williams considered the idea that the board needed new blood as much as the club did. Here at LFC, as in the city, as in the nation and the world, things were to change with an almost dizzying speed. In those first few weeks of this tenure, Bill Shankly formed the core of the famous boot room that with very few changes would endure for the next 30 years. Anfield itself was run down, often in trouble with the local fire safety officer. It didn't even have a system in place enabling the groundsmen to properly water the pitch. Players, as they had done for decades past, would change at Anfield and then run through the streets to the club's Melwood training ground. This was stopped immediately by an infuriated Shankly, and henceforth buses now took them there. Chairman Williams began the process of drawing in local businesses as partners, sponsors and eventually commercial partners in a very early version of what we now know as the financial system around football today. The first incarnation of this was a deal for the buses to take players to Melwood, and to matches of 50 miles or less of travelling. Shankly loathed the idea of endless running without the ball in training. We're training our boys to be footballers, not marathon runners, he would often say. Melwood, however, was even more undown than Anfield. An old, somewhat dilapidated wooden cricket pavilion with a leaky roof and covered in peeling paint was the only building. The pitches lay untended and potholed, looking to Shankly as if they had been bombed, Shankly even asked the chairman if the Germans had been over, and whether it had been tended in any meaningful way since it had been acquired. All this had to be addressed, along with a radical new training system, and fast. The pitches were made smooth and level, necessary, Shankly told anyone who would listen, to further his ideas of passing and moving the ball around at speed, one touch where possible. Anfield was to be made the same way. The grass was to be no longer than an inch, three-quarters of an inch if possible, evenly cut. For the non-computerised heavy iron and steel mowers of the day, this was no easy task. Shankly convinced the board to buy two council roadwork-style steamrollers, one large, one small, to keep all his pitches smooth and even. An extensive programme of mole removal at Melwood was also undertaken. As the basic facilities were, bit by bit upgraded, Shankly, Paisley, Fagan and Bennett worked on their strategy and new training methods. No more endless running, Lots of competitive five-a-side games to improve passing, speed on the ball and decision-making. Canadian Air Force exercises were introduced as a proper warm-up and for the first time, warm-down system. Fagan believed Shankly was the first manager ever to understand and identify the need for proper warming down to avoid soft tissue and joint injuries. From that moment on, despite the game being so much harder for so many reasons at that time, the number of Liverpool players out because of training or matchday non-impact injuries drastically tailed off. This in turn led to Shankly having a wider pool of existing players to call upon. He would look more and more to Fagan's reserves and set about bringing in that which he believed his team was missing. Despite losing the next game 3-0 away at Charlton, by the end of his first half-season in charge, Shankly had more than stabilised the Liverpool ship. 
they would only lose three more games that season under his command, drawing five and winning 11, including spectacular wins of 5-1 at home to Stoke City, 4-0 against Bristol Rovers, and in the very last game of the season, 3-0 away at the then-mighty Sunderland. Liverpool finished third in the second division, eight points off the pace. Aston Villa, whom Liverpool had beaten 2-1 at home and forced a magnificent 4-4 draw with at Villa Park, were promoted as champions, with Cardiff, Shankly's one-time humiliators, going up in second place. Progress was clear, but so were the deficiencies. Bright spots consisted mostly of the promoted reserves of the 20-year-old Roger Hunt and the 17-year-old Ian Callaghan, Billy Liddell's natural successor. Of Ian Callaghan, Shankly would eventually say, A real player. A man, he's been there since I went to Liverpool, and I've never had to say anything to him at all. Do this, do that. You don't do this, you don't do that. I never had to say a wrong word to the boy. All I've had to do was to simmer him down in training and stop him from killing himself during the week and shoo him out to, with a curb him. But to say anything to him, you didn't do this, so you did that wrong. Uh, a model player, a model man, a fantastic man to have in your boot. In February 1960, as the boredom over Shankly's transfer demands, he signed Sammy Reid, a winger on a free transfer from Motherwell, though it never worked out for Reid, who never even made a first-team appearance. The board, cajoled by Chairman Williams, began to slacken the strings. During the summer, Shankly made more auspicious signings that would play a significant part in pointing the way to the future. Goalscorer Kevin Lewis came for £13,000 from Sheffield United and would become an important part of the push for promotion, as would Alf Arrowsmith for the princely sum of £1,250 from Ashton United. And for £16,000, the vital talent of Gordon Milne was brought in from 1st Division Preston North End, Shankly's old club from his playing days, and somewhere he would turn to again in the market with equal success a couple of years later. Milne would ease out wing-half Bobby Campbell, who would go on to manage Portsmouth and Chelsea, among others. Bobby passed away at the age of 78 while I was writing this piece. It's worth remembering that quite a few of the players and all of the staff at this time in Liverpool's history are sadly no longer with us. Lewis, Arrowsmith and Milne would, over the next few seasons, prove vital in displacing the Deadwood at Anfield and pushing on beyond the second division to Shankly's first title and trophies at Liverpool. And yet, as the new season of 1960-61 to was about to kick off, Reuben Bennett, staring over the training sessions at Melwood without looking at Shankly, said, We're still a bit short where we can't afford to do, boss. Shankly stood next to him, his eyes also fixed on the training sessions, and simply replied, We are indeed. Nevertheless, things at the start of this first full Shankly season looked far rosier than they had done when he arrived eight months earlier. Anfield was beginning the process of being overhauled and brought up to date. Melwood was undergoing a similar transformation. The squad had improved by judicious buying and promotion of junior staff. The players no longer had to jog miles along often cobbled streets to training. The infamous sweatbox, a system invented by Shankly of four walls, like a room, with targets for a player to hit, receive and play the ball to the next target on an opposite wall, while he stood in the middle and all to be done as swiftly as possible in no more than two-minute sessions, was paying dividends. The new season kicked off in good fashion with a 2-0 home win against Leeds United, new boy Kevin Lewis getting on the score sheet 28 minutes into his debut. However, the next seven games would yield only one more win, two draws and four defeats, which would prove costly by the end of the season. After this, Liverpool would go on a run of 14 games unbeaten, including 11 wins and three draws before once again stuttering to three defeats in a row. The rest of the season would prove patchy, with another run of seven games unbeaten, including five wins, 
followed by a petering out of a mix of wins, draws and losses until the end. Liverpool went out of the FA Cup at the fourth round stage, losing 2-0 at home to Sunderland, a performance that infuriated Shankly as they also drew 1-1 with Sunderland that season twice, home and away, in games he felt they were by far the better team and should have murdered them. Highlights of the 1960-61 season included a 5-0 home win against Orient, 4-0 and 4-1 home away wins against Swansea City and Derby County respectively, and a hat-trick for Jimmy Harrower in the 4-2 home win over Sheffield United. Nonetheless, for Harrower, the end was nigh. The shortness, as noticed by both Shankly and Bennett, was clear to see, as Liverpool once again finished just outside the promotion places in third, this time behind Ipswich Town as champions and Sheffield United as runners-up. The gap had been reduced to only six points. Shankly and the bootroom boys knew the defence needed a commanding presence to unify it. The attack needed someone to support and accompany the increasingly effective and impressive Roger Hunt, Kevin Lewis being better used as a winger than an inside forward. Bert Slater, the goalkeeper brought in by Phil Taylor in the summer of 1959, was certainly better than his predecessor, but was not ideal for Shankly's purposes. Better handling, better and quicker distribution, that too would need to be addressed. Despite Shankly buying Jim Fennell from Burnley for £18,000 in February 1962, Joe Fagan eventually convinced him that the answer to this particular problem was already under his nose in the reserves, in the slightly rotund and Tony Curtis hairstyled shape of a young Scottish-born, though raised in Warrington, Tommy Lawrence, who had been at the club largely ignored by everyone but Fagan since 1957. Another piece of the jigsaw was in the not-too-distant future to be put into place. If the chances of Liverpool getting promoted were warming up, the decade-and-a-half Cold War was coming to the boil. Movement between the Communist East and the Capitalist West was restrictive, but still relatively easy and far from impossible. It is thought that between 1950 and 1961, as many as one million East Germans decided to move to the West, everyone from factory workers, taxi drivers, teachers, disgruntled party officials, anti-communists, soldiers, writers, dancers, musicians and scientists, even before British scientists became the subject of the famed brain drain to the Americas in the 1960s, East German, some Polish and a few Hungarian and Czech scientists created a brain drain of their own heading west. This the Soviet government of Nikita Khrushchev in particular found intolerable. On the morning of August 13, 1961, Berliners awoke to find the two halves of the city cut off from each other, with a new wall separating East and West Berlin. Borders between East and West all along the Iron Curtain were heavily reinforced. Within days, a cleared area behind the East German side of the wall was implanted with minefields over 100 metres deep, layers of barbed wire and 360-degree coverage by spotlight-bearing machine-gun towers. Despite Soviet claims that this was to protect the East Germans from invasion or influence from the West, no one was fooled. The East Germans were now effectively prisoners in their own land with family members in one half of the city forever cut off from those in the other. The tension between east and west shot up several degrees. The worst was yet to come. Hamburg, from the end of August 1960 through late 1962, with intervening trips back to Liverpool, the latest hastily reshaped version of the Beatles, John, Paul, George, Stu and Pete, were, after being called a fucking awful pack of gobshites by fellow bandsmen Derry and the Seniors, 
already the hard-line favourites of the Hamburg music scene, playing anywhere from 8 to 12 hour shifts had made them tight, inventive and nerveless. Soon bassist Juice Sutcliffe, Lennon's best mate, who was only in the band because John wanted him there, would leave the band to be with Astrid Kircher, a budding and creative photographer and one of the group's closest Hamburg friends, the plan being to marry her and get back to his true love, making art. Stu would die of a brain hemorrhage in April 1962, sadly before either of these dreams could be realised, most likely as the result of a kick to the head he took in Liverpool after he was jumped by a gang of jealous boys after a gig at Litherland Town Hall. Astrid would later claim that after Stu's death, Lennon would never be quite the same again. Stu was the only friend of any of the Beatles to appear on the Sgt Pepper album cover, the only other clear Liverpool reference on the Sgt Pepper cover being that of Albert Stubbins, centre-forward of the 1950s Liverpool team and Lennon's favourite player. In the UK, the economy as the 60s began to develop was continuing its gradual improvement. British cinema was undergoing a revival, attaining great success in areas such as bleak, socio-realist kitchen sink dramas like Billy Liar, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner and A Kind of Loving. Sweeping epics such as Lawrence of Arabia and, of course, both the fantastic and grittier views of the Cold War itself with the first Sean Connery James Bond film, Dr. No, and his cheeky Cockney anti-hero alternative, Michael Caine's Harry Palmer in The Ipcress File. In short order, British actors, directors and writers were in big demand in Hollywood. The great and iconic British car, the Mini Minor, went on sale and over the next decade became a truly global hit. The original price was £497, less than the official average weekly wage for a full-time semi-skilled employee in 2015, perhaps. But, cheap as it was, it was still more than a year's wages for most people at the time. The car would become one of the icons of the mod movement and become a global star in its own right thanks to the Italian job. In competition, Ford UK introduced the larger first version of the Cortina, still considered by many as the definitive working-class car, but it was not as cheap as the Mini and was first the mainstay of the middle classes almost until the 1970s. The first colour television programmes came to the USA, though few people even in America as yet had colour sets to watch them on. Britain and the BBC had it first, and a better system at 625 lines, as opposed to the rather smudgy US 425. But concluded there was no demand, and so let's stick as we are for now. Very British. But then, in a country at the time of over 56 million inhabitants, there were still fewer than 1 million TVs out there. This would explode rapidly by the middle of the decade. In politics, the Tory Minister of War, yes, we still had one back then, John Profumo was enjoying the best of London's call girls in 1961, and many of the new, as yet, legal drugs. He was, unknowingly, sharing one of those call girls, Christine Keeler, with a naval attaché from the Soviet Embassy. This would blow up in the Conservative government's faces in spring 1963, and prove a major factor in Labour's win in 1964. Pop music, as it was now being called, to mollify those who thought the idea of rock and roll was somehow dirty, was still a growing yet largely company-manufactured industry and was going through a spate of having many imported American teen idol crooning-type singers called Bobby, Bobby Darren, Bobby V, Bobby Rydell, and so on. There was also a rather morbid period of songs being about dead girl or boyfriends, the most successful of which was Tell Laura I Love Her by Welsh-born singer Ricky Valance, most songs were of the I love you, you love me, cutesie pie, moon in June, Tim Pan Alley type stuff that wouldn't offend a particularly pious nun. Limp and stylized crooning was largely the order of the day, 
Cliff Richard was Britain's most popular singer of the time, which says it all. This too was soon to change once the sound of Merseybeat was fully honed. Before that, however, after an audition for Decca by the Beatles in January 1962, producer Dick Rowe infamously refused to sign them, explaining, I'm sorry, Mr. Epstein, but bands of guitars are on the way out. History does not record how many nights in the coming decades that poor old Dick Rowe woke, screaming in the night in a cold sweat. In a moment of almost remarkable magnanimity, the Beatles did later introduce him to their friends, the Rolling Stones, suggesting he sign them. This time, he didn't need asking twice. With the end of the 1960-61 season, Bill Shankly's thoughts once again turned to offloading more players he thought were no longer up to the mark, and again finding more new blood of the type he needed to push on and through. First came the retirement of the legend that was Billy Little, after a then-club record 492 appearances and 152 goals in a career interrupted by World War II that lasted from 1938 to 1961. In due respect, the club organised its first ever proper testimonial for him. He would be finally replaced by Ian Callaghan, who Little himself championed. Callaghan himself in time would go on to smash Little's record with 857 appearances, a record that still stands. His playing days over, Billy Little completed an accountancy qualification and served as Assistant Permanent Secretary and Bursar to the University of Liverpool until 1984. He worked tirelessly in and around Liverpool for various charities, including Alderhay Hospital. Diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and onset dementia, he died in his Liverpool home in July 2001, within a week of his old friends and other Liverpool legends, Joe Fagan and Tom Saunders. In May 1961, with Chairman Williams as his accomplice, even driving the car as Shankly was a notoriously bad driver, motoring north of the border once more, Shankly finally got one of the men he wanted, inside forward Ian St John. He was back in Scotland barely two months later to sign a man he considered absolutely key to future success, his colossus, Big Ron Yates, and immediately installed him as his new club captain. Shankly's jigsaw now had almost all of its pieces, and for the most part was now the team everyone would soon learn to fear. Well, Ronnie Yates uh, uh, was one of the cornerstones here at Liverpool. Uh, his coming, along with Ian St John, around the same time, was the, the very beginning of Liverpool's rise. For the new season, St John would be paired with Roger Hunt up front. Bert Slater would remain in goal for the time being. Tommy Lawrence, just turned 21, would have to wait his turn. Shankly brought in Jim Fennell from Burnley to replace the unconvincing Bert Slater in February 1962, immediately coming in for the last 13 games of the season. At the back, Jerry Byrne, Ronnie Moran, Ron Yates and Johnny Molyneux were the favoured and strong defence, with the midfield filled regularly by a mix of Tommy Leishman, Jimmy Melia, new man Gordon Milne, Ian Callaghan and Kevin Lewis. Although Hunt and St John would become the favoured attacking pair, Alf Arrowsmith and Alan Accord would also put in useful stints between injuries, injuries which would eventually cut short both very promising careers before their time. The season, full of hope and optimism within the club and a ripening growing belief among the fans that had already begun to realise in some numbers that Bill Shankly, despite the lack of TV and media exposure coaches would expect in 2015, was not your run-of-the-mill manager. His voice so far had been rarely heard outside of very few short-and-sweet radio post-match clips, and only a few choice snippets in the Liverpool Echo and the Daily Mirror carried his thoughts beyond the recently revamped matchday programmes. Only a handful of the hardcore fans knew of his distinctive Glenbrook brogue. Nevertheless, despite the irregular performances at the end of the 1960-61 season, 
The changes they saw, the new players coming in and coming up, the speed and the precision of the pass and move football that was developing in front of them, told the fans that something big was stirring. Accordingly, larger crowds were now becoming the norm again for the first time in a decade at Anfield, and not just for the occasional big game. There was sadness at the farewell of Billy Liddle. After all, during the late 1940s and 50s, the team was nicknamed Liddlepool, not least by their own fans. But there was hope, belief and promise, with the new boys Milne, Callaghan, Yates, St John, Lewis and especially Roger Hunt. Hunt was a strong yet astonishingly graceful player. He seemed to glide over the pitch and had a knack of being exactly where he needed to be to score a goal, or make one from nothing possibly Liverpool's first truly modern player. He also had a knack for scoring the kind of goal from time to time that other forwards could only gape at. Later, Liverpool strikers Keegan Rush and even Luis Suarez would lord Roger Hunt. Ian St John would also get his share of goals and make many for Hunt, Lewis, Arrowsmith and others. He was a battler, a rare forward hard man who would put legs and head where others feared to go. He was, like Hunt, not the quickest, but whereas Hunt would gracefully leave players confused in his wake by the skill and speed of his footwork, St John would bustle, intercept passes, dragging himself bodily through a defence. Like Hunt, he was really injured in an era when the game was tough and unforgiving, often legally so. One suspects that if he was injured, more often than not, he wouldn't let on. The speed in the attack generally came from the flanks with Lewis and Callaghan. Neither were big men, both were quick in their own inimitable style, both direct and constantly forward-thinking. Both also knew where the goal was. This was a fitter, younger Liverpool. The average age of the squad was just 24. It would come down further in the next couple of years. Ron Yates, captain and giant, was the immovable object at the back. Chelsea's fleet-footed Bobby Tambling once said Yates was a one-man wall that somehow moved and hunted you down. I would describe myself as a 120% player. You know, I hate it to get beat. Jerry Byrne was as tough as they come, and Gordon Milne, though almost as tough as Byrne, had an eye for goal when the chance presented itself. The team, though not its full famous 60s lineup just yet, was well balanced, a tight unit and strong. In the days before substitutes, being strong was a quality that counted in and of itself. The 1961-62 season kicked off with an away game at Bristol Rovers' old Eastville ground, part football stadium, part dog track, nestling beneath a large gasometer off the entry road into Bristol. A huge Ikea now occupies much of the site of this once infamous ground. On the slippery, drizzly day of sunshine and mixed low cloud, the dominant figure in the game was new captain Ron Yates, whom a good rover's side found hard to get beyond and at the goal. Kevin Lewis, with a powerful drive from the edge of the box, opened the scoring for Liverpool as early as the seventh minute, and Bristol Rovers, one of the favourites for promotion that year, struggled to put any meaningful play together for the first half-hour as Liverpool pressed and harried them, denying them space, attacking and defending as a single unit. Early in the second half, on 55 minutes, Johnny Hills, the former veteran Spurs player who had only just joined Rovers, powerfully sliced a Leishman through ball into his own net while attempting to clear it. Hills would only make a further six appearances for Rovers before being dropped and retiring at the end of the season. After the second goal, despite a few efforts to force the issue, Rovers' heads dropped, and only the woodwork, which Liverpool hit three times in the last 20 minutes, prevented the result from being a rout. The game finished nil-two, and the new Liverpool season had got off to a near-perfect start. Rovers would never recover from this poor beginning, and despite being early favourites, were relegated to the old third division at the end of the season.
Liverpool now put their collective foot on the pedal, going ten games unbeaten, winning nine and drawing only one. A nil-nil away match at Brighton in which they dominated and did everything but score. This ten-game period included two 5-0 home wins against Leeds United and Bury, a 4-0 home win and 4-1 away win against Charlton and Sunderland respectively, and also included beating Sunderland at home 3-0. A short period of mixed results followed, with two nil-two losses away at Derby and Middlesbrough and a 6-1 home win against Walsall sandwiched in between, a game in which Hunt scored his second quick-fire hat-trick of five in a season in which he would prove near unstoppable his partnership with Ian St John bearing fruit almost from the word go. Liverpool would only lose seven league games in all that season, and remember, this was in the days of a 42-game season with no substitutes. They suffered eight draws and won 27. Among that 27 were marauding wins of 6-1, 3 of 5-0, 1 of 5-1 and 1 of 5-4. There were three narrow losses of 0-1, 3 of 0-2, and Liverpool's heaviest defeat of the season came on the last day, 2-4 away at Swansea City's old Vetchfield ground, on a pitch described by Bob Paisley as a physio's nightmare. But by then, it didn't matter. Liverpool had secured promotion five games earlier, and the championship had effectively been in the bag after beating a combative Plymouth side 3-2 away. In the two points for a win, one point for a draw era, Liverpool finished the season with 62 points. This time, they were eight points clear of second-place Leighton Orient, whom they had drawn with twice that season. 3-3 at Anfield and 2-2 away at Brisbane Road. Second place Orient had scored a remarkable 69 goals for and 40 against that season. Liverpool, however, had scored a stunning 99 for and 43 against, with Roger Hunt scoring 41 of them, including five hat-tricks. St John also bagged his first hat-trick in a 4-1 home win against Rotherham and totaled 17 goals in his first season at the club. Joe Melia chipped in with 12, Plenty of other goals were spread about the team. Football columnists and papers around the country had all begun to discover this new red powerhouse on the Mersey. Some thought this group of young, speedy, pass-and-move players were as good as, if not better, than the Busby Babes of a few years before. Others rather haughtily thought at the higher level they would be badly found out. And the Scotsmen, as some still referred to Shankly, would come a cropper. No one in Liverpool gave a damn what the mixed-media reports told them. They had seen the evidence with their own eyes, and legends were already being built around Shankly, Yates, St John, Byrne and Hunt. The cop was showing signs of becoming different from any other football crowd anywhere, bursting into song at a moment's notice, vodlerising popular hits at the time to feature their own favourite players. Even the manager had earned himself his own chant, which he never failed to acknowledge. special communion was being created between Bill Shankly and Liverpool Football Club, the cop and all fans. Coming up for seven decades later, it is a bond still unbroken, now indestructible. Talking about this many years after the events discussed over a lunchtime drink with the staff at the Playhouse when I was in my first proper job as a junior member of the set design team sometime in the mid-70s, the director opined that it was more than the founding of a football dynasty, it was a time when Liverpool fans created their own altering gods, a time when Anfield ceased to be a mere football ground that was dirty, dishevelled, lacking in amenities and in desperate need of a thorough overhaul, and started to become a place of pilgrimage. 
Despite being the striker in a second division team, Roger Hunt had already been called up as an England international by Walter Winterbottom, whose national setup needed new blood and an almost complete rebuilding after being unceremoniously turned over 3 1 by eventual 1962 World Cup champions Brazil. When new man Alf Ramsey took over the England reins, it wasn't long before Jimmy Melia, Gordon Mill, and Jerry Byrne would be joining Hunt in the New England setup. Eventually, Ian Callaghan would get the call. But apart from Hunt, Ramsey never seemed to know how to make good use of his other Liverpool charges, and their number of caps remained surprisingly small. Liverpool were champions of the second division, and as Bill Shankly had fulfilled the first part of his earnest promise to Chairman Tom Williams to get them back in the big league, Williams continued to be progressively impressed with the sometimes difficult Shankly, and admitted that although he had spent more money in doing it than the club was used to, he had hardly broken the bank, and his demands for yet more money to add to his team and push on to the next stage were far from unreasonable. Even the infamously parsimonious board was swept up by this new success, and agreed he should have whatever funds he needed, within reason, of course. With Shankly's assistance, they also agreed that as soon as the club's position in the higher league was secured, a wholesale redesign of Anfield could, as Shankly so desperately wanted, be begun. In the interim, the basics were taken care of. The pitch could now be watered from almost any angle and direction. New floodlights were brought in, and Shankly's demand for new toilets for the fans and better, fully fitted out changing rooms, baths, showers, and a treatment room for the players were underway. As journalist and later BBC commentator Sam Leach once put it, things stirred after Bill's arrival. A former giant was woken, and in the season they finally attained promotion, the football was breathtaking. The players seemed as modern as the times, and the whole club vibrated with energy and a growing momentum. Everton manager Harry Catrick, who had been in post barely a year, sent a note of congratulation to Shankly, which reportedly carried the message, now the rest have a whole city to worry about. Although many fans on either side of Stanley Park wouldn't realise it at the time, the public rivalry between Shankly and Catterick was underscored by a mutual respect and growing friendship. The day after the final match of the championship winning season, back at Anfield, Shankly got his backroom staff together, and after a short burst of anger at losing the last game of the season away to Swansea, the immediate task of preparing for the next season back in Division 1 got underway. No one in the backroom staff was lackadaisical or complacent, thinking success at the higher level was assured. That was neither Shankly, Paisley, Fagan or Bennett's way. In discussing the need for new players, it was Bob Paisley in his slow, laid-back drawn drawl who coined the phrase, he could do a job for us, that was adopted by the rest of the boot room, and indicated the player had made it to the top of a very short list of new blood they wished to bring in. Supporters, they mean everything to me. When I come out on the field on a Saturday, I'm prepared to, to die for these people. Ian St John and Ron Yates, after a snarling introduction on the training pitches, had become fast friends already. The quiet blonde bummer, Roger Hunt, would disappear to play golf in the off-season, usually locally, usually with another player such as Jerry Byrne or one of his friends from across the park. Nobody went to Ibiza or sloped off to Dubai or the Caribbean for a break in those days. Until recently at the time, footballers were on strictly fixed wages, although some directors would top up their pay by sleight of hand, such as betting them £100 they couldn't jump over a waste paper basket, or betting them they couldn't drink a glass of water in under 30 seconds. Weird as it seems, this actually happened at many clubs. Sounds hard to believe? Well, listen to this. It might sound like Harry Enfield doing Mr. Chum de Warner, but in fact, it's very real. 
from Roker Park sprang the sensation that shook the world of football rigid. Sunderland were fined £5,000. Two directors, including one-time mayor, the chairman, E.W. Ditchburn, suspended from all football management. Four players of Sunderland today, with former teammates Chisholm and the ebullient, always in the limelight, Trevor Ford, are to be at a joint FA and league inquiry. Sunderland chairman Ditchburn pulled no punches when interviewed. What action do you propose to take over your suspension? I, I intend to take every action that is possible to protect myself and the uh, club in particular, as I think the FA rules are antiquated now to date. Dick and Hart is inquisitor, jury, judge and hangman. Even a criminal is entitled to a court of appeal, but for the Football Association, no. Even the stars of soccer, this is young Duncan Edwards in full goal-getting fight, even centre-forward genius Tommy Taylor, only get the maximum wage, £15 a week. Yet they pull in thousands at the gate. Matthews has a film star's following on a bit player's wage. So has Billy Wright. No wonder clubs seek ways of paying more. At Fulham, Jimmy Hill, chairman of the Players' Union, had something trenchant to say. How does the Sunderland affair affect members of your union? Well, if it draws attention to the fact that there has been money available in the game which could not uh, legally be paid to players, I feel it does indicate some fault in the system and will materially benefit the cause of the union. Any ambitious lad who is earning £15 a week in the game and naturally enough would be looking for his next pound or two to add to his wages has got to turn his attention outside the game. Spurs goalkeeper Ted Ditchburn runs a ticket agency. Also not waiting for the game to discard him is Tom Finney, plumber. These men know that big-time soccer's a dead end. Ex-international Stan Mortensen tried running a fancy goods shop. His former club mate, still at Blackpool, Matthews himself kept a hotel for a time. Some old players get jobs in the game. That great Welshman Ron Burgess is team manager at Swansea. Higher up in the field of full management, ruling the roost at Chelsea, is the famous Ted Drake. But these are the fortunate few, like former Charlton manager Jimmy Seed. The average players are on the scrap heap at 40. At Football Association headquarters, Secretary Sir Stanley Rouse firmly opposes under the counter payments to players. Now comes the new sensation. For the great John Charles, an Italian dub offers Leeds £65,000, of which Charles himself would get a cool 10000 and at least 2000 a year wages. That makes the FA maximum £15 a week look very sick. As in all other entertainment, football could easily pay star wages to star performers. If the Sunderland startup does nothing else, it underlines the question, do the big-time players get a square deal? It's worth noting that only the best players were lucky enough to get that £15 maximum. Former Fulham player and later match of the day stalwart Jimmy Hill led the campaign against the footballers' maximum wage fix in January 1961, and to the consternation of chairman everywhere, he and the players' union won. However, this was not the start of today's hyperinflated footballers' pay, just the end of a ridiculously tight-fisted restraint of trade. It may come as a surprise to younger fans, but many of the great British players of the time, John Charles, as mentioned in the clip, Dennis Law, Jimmy Greaves, for example, would take the leap of faith and play abroad mostly in Italy and Spain, to have a significantly more financially rewarding career. After the lifting of the maximum wage, many drifted back. Some Liverpool and Everton players who had family working in the city would often get ribbed that those working on the docks got paid a lot more than they did for a lot less aggro. By the time of the 1970s, most footballers at the highest levels earned quite a decent living wage. Equivalent to an average TV game show host perhaps, not excessive, but some reasonable remuneration for their effort in leading what with television's growing intrusion, 
was now a far more public life than their recent predecessors. It was not until the advent of the Premier League, over 30 years after Jimmy Hill's win in the courts, and the subsequent arrival of big money from Sky, that the real footballing wage spiral began. Back in the 60s, it was not uncommon to find yourself queuing at the local chippy and noticing Jeff Strong, Chris Lawler or Tommy Smith in the same queue. Seeing footballers take a bus to training was also not uncommon. Back at Anfield, in the quiet of an off-season stadium, the boot room was busy. Shankly, Paisley, Fagan and Bennett were proud of what their team had done, but knew going up a tier presented a challenge they felt that the squad at their command was not wholly ready for. Improvements and acquisitions needed to be made for the upcoming 1962-63 season. Some old favourites would have to be let go, some fresh blood would have to be brought in. An irregular pattern had emerged within the boot room regarding who to move on and who to bring in. Fagan would put the case for those to be promoted from the reserves. Shankly, Paisley, but most especially Bennett, would go and scout players in whom some level of interest had been agreed. All of this was done behind closed doors. There was no TV football as yet. Managers, let alone assistants, were not known outside of their own fan base, and a Reuben Bennett or even a Bill Shankly turning up to watch a player in a midweek Wolves versus Man City game at Old Main Road or Molyneux would go singularly unnoticed by other fans and media. Consequently, it was rare for fans to be aware of a new player being brought in until the deal was done and a photo of him signing the contract was printed in the Echo. Fees were seldom mentioned unless they were in some way remarkable. A fair bit of this quiet discussion and equally quiet scouting had gone on during the promotion-winning season, and it only accelerated once promotion seemed more likely than not. Goalkeeper Jim Fennell proved a useful acquisition for the last half of that season, but the feeling that he could yet be improved on in a setup that started by first having a rock-solid defence was still nagging at the back of Shankly's mind. In their turn, or sometimes in pairs, the bootroom staff had been up and down the country looking at prospects at many clubs in all divisions. Persuading the board to cough up would be a lot easier henceforth. That much was understood. But whether to pay more for quality or a sight less for promise, that was the balancing act. Shankly and the boys agreed that the midfield and forward end could do with a bit more strength and guile for the higher division. Yet it was still a surprise to some that once again he went shopping in Scotland, and in October 1962, with the season already underway, the first transfer in took place in the shape of Willie Stevenson from Rangers, who arrived for a fee of £20,000. This turned out to be a bargain, though it was at the upper end of what Liverpool were used to paying for a player at the time. In December, defender Bobby Thompson was brought in from Partick Thistle, again the Scottish connection, for a fee of £7,000. Thompson, however, would only play eight games for the Reds in the 1963-64 season before being shipped out. Even Shankly got a few wrong. Yet thanks to Joe Fagan's reserve programme, few would notice this particular mistake. Fagan had pushed for three young lads to be promoted to the first team. Having been a keen observer of the reserves, Shankly immediately agreed. And so it was, local boys Chris Lawler and Tommy Smith were promoted, finally followed by Scotsborne goalkeeper Tommy Lawrence. For Bert Slater, Johnny Molyneux, old fan favourite Dick White and local boy Johnny Morrissey, it was the end of the Liverpool line. Morrissey moved across the park to Everton, where he would have an impressive and rewarding career. The first thing Shankly wanted to do was consolidate the team in the higher division, though, as always, part of him half wanted, half expected, to win it. The idea that Liverpool may come up one season and go down the next like so many others was not an option. He had plans that stretched far beyond such small horizons. It was going to be tough, that much was certain but establish themselves first and foremost, they must. And yet, all that was hoped and dreamed for 
in Liverpool with the club, the Beatles and the entire world came within a heartbeat of being vaporised as the Cold War finally came to the boil. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military build-up on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. On October the 16th, 1962, a U-2 high-altitude spy plane of the American Air Force on a CIA-sponsored mission discovered and came back with photographic evidence that the island of Cuba under Fidel Castro was installing medium-range nuclear missiles from the USSR, despite earlier denials from both parties. This was the Bay of Pigs' failed invasion of two years earlier coming home to roost. The world genuinely stood on the edge of a nuclear holocaust, the first world crisis that was at least in part played out on television. For 13 days the people of the world wondered if they had a future. Jerry and the pacemakers were also in Hamburg, having followed the Beatles, Rory Storm and many others over to the then West Germany, honing their art with equally long shifts on stage. Jerry Marsden would later recall going on stage during the Cuban Missile Crisis and wondering if the band would live to see the end of their set. The Cuban Crisis finally ended on October the 28th when a fleet of Russian cargo ships carrying more missiles and supplies turned back from the line of US Navy ships which were blockading Cuba at the last possible moment under direct instructions from Moscow. A deal between the two major powers of East and West was brokered via a back channel at the 11th hour. Had the deal not been agreed, had the Soviet submarines, which were later found to be sailing under and among the cargo ships, fired upon the American blockade, had the Americans decided to attack the cargo ships, the world as we knew it, and know it today, could have ended. Historically, many felt that this was clearly the right result, and a deal had to be done. Nonetheless, militarist and political hawks on both sides of the Iron Curtain believed that their president, Jack Kennedy, or their premier, Nikita Khrushchev, had acted weakly in the face of opposing aggression. Incredibly, some politicians and military leaders still believed, on either side, that a nuclear war could be won. There was a certain amount of logical and circumstantial evidence that the settlement of the Cuba Missile Crisis were significant contributing factors in both the overthrow of Khrushchev and the assassination of JFK, unless, of course, you wish to accept the stories of the official Soviet history or the Warren Report. The missiles were removed from Cuba and life went on, and the sheer relief that it did so may also have been a factor in the societal and cultural changes that were to follow. Every man, woman and child on the planet with access to television, radio or newspapers now knew that for the first time the whole of human existence could be ended at the push of a button. I've always felt this morbid understanding of the fragility of all existence has, ever since, fueled much of the urgency of intelligent youth in particular. The threat of nuclear Armageddon has, of course, subsided greatly from the fever pitch it reached in the 60s, though this only really began to completely abate with the collapse of the USSR and the Eastern Bloc beginning in 1989 with the demolition of one of the main focus points of the whole episode, the Berlin Wall. But for those too young to have lived consciously through it, from Bob Dylan's A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, to the powerful TV dramas Edge of Darkness, Threads, War Games, The Day After Tomorrow and many others besides, there was a very real cultural and public obsession that everything we knew and held dear could vanish instantly in a flash of bright white heat hotter than the centre of the sun. To those of us who did live and grow through the era between 1962 to 89, 
the end of the world really did seem with good justification to be no more than a four-minute warning away, a sort of Damocles that helped to develop a youthful cynicism toward politicians, a million conspiracy theories, not all of them false, and the need for a counterculture. Much of this, in 1962, was still a few years off in full realisation. The new season of 1962-63 to 63 did not get off to the start the boot room or the players would want, and was certainly not the one their growing vocal army of fans desired or expected. On a bright summer afternoon on August 18, 1962, Liverpool played their first game back in the top division against Blackpool at Anfield in front of a crowd of 51,207. The first half was played at breakneck speed with both sides having them fluffing chances, the best of which probably fell to Jimmy Melia of Liverpool, who, seven yards out in front of an open goal, could only slice the ball to Alan Accord, who put it wide from a tight angle. Jimmy Armfield of Blackpool spent most of the afternoon trying to obstruct or kick lubs out of Roger Hunt, until Ron Yates singularly returned the favour. An exhausting first half ended nil-nil, with Liverpool having just about the better of the exchanges, but with Blackpool also having their share of play and chances. It was 75 minutes before the deadlock was broken by a header from Ray Charnley that gave Blackpool the lead, a lead that was doubled only two minutes later with a low drive by Des Horn. Jim Fennell and the Liverpool goal had been in turns both brilliant and dodgy. St John had a goal incorrectly ruled offside and in the 84th minute Liverpool did finally get on the score sheet with a 30-yard pile driver from the busy and dangerous Kevin Lewis. But it was, alas, too little too late, and Liverpool's much-anticipated big opening game in the top division ended in defeat. The Liverpool echo bled, Liverpool find it tough in the first division. And they were right. It would take a while yet for the right level to be found. The next game on the following Wednesday was a creditable 2-2 draw with Manchester City at Main Road, in front of a low early-season gate of 33,000. Unusually, Ronnie Moran with a 21st-minute penalty got on the score sheet, and with Liverpool 2-1 down, it was Roger Hunt's 79th-minute drive that levelled the scores. On the following Saturday, 25th of August, in the Reds' second away game of the season, a hard-fought game on a ploughed field of a pitch at Ewood Park against Blackburn seemed to be heading for another draw, this time goalless, when Brian Douglas nicked it at the death for Blackburn, when a save from Fennell trickled straight to his feet on the heavy pitch. After three games, Liverpool had just one point and were three places off the bottom in 19th in the old 22-team First Division. The pressure was eased with Liverpool winning the next two games, both at home, 4-1 against Manchester City with Hunt adding another two goals to his tally, and then 2-0 against the strong Nottingham Forest side, the opener coming after ten minutes with Ian Callaghan's first of the season, an angled drive from the corner of the box that Forest keeper Hodgkinson didn't even bother to move for, such was the power and accuracy of Cali's strike. Liverpool's next eleven games would yield only two more wins, two draws, one being a 2-2 draw at Goodison in a hard-fought derby, the first in a decade, another being a memorable 3-3 draw away against Manchester United at Old Trafford on the 10th of November and no less than six defeats. At the end of this game, Liverpool were 20th in the table. What everyone with sense knew was going to be a difficult season was beginning to look ominous. Shankly in the boot room had already had several councils of war about how to arrest this decline, and Willie Stevenson, who had been signed only a couple of weeks beforehand, was introduced to the fray. Stevenson had recently been displaced by the great Jim Baxter at Rangers, and had decided to spend some time visiting family in Australia, in his absence, a bidding war for his services developed between Preston and Liverpool, a bidding war Shankly was not prepared to lose. Shankly got his man. 
Jim Fennell had broken a finger, and Joe Fagan's young charge, Tommy Lawrence, took over between the sticks. Fennell would never get back as the number one choice. Ian Callaghan and Kevin Lewis swapped wings, and the introduction of Stevenson stiffened up the middle, and saw what was to become the beginning of the end for Gordon Wallace and Tommy Leishman. Shankly had the team playing at an even higher tempo, pressing further up the pitch with an emphasis on incisive one-touch football. The Melwood sweatbox was seeing a lot of overtime. It paid off. Liverpool's next 17 games produced 12 wins, 4 draws and only 1 defeat. This run alone guaranteed them a second season in the top division. Hunt and St John started scoring for fun, with Kevin Lewis getting his first share into the bargain. The last game of this run was a 1-0 home win against Manchester United, St John scoring a 72nd minute winner that United keeper Harry Gregg could do nothing about. Liverpool were now 6th in the table, but this would be as good as it got. In the remaining nine games of the season, there was a reversal of form, with Liverpool losing six, drawing two and winning only one. However, at the end of their first season in the top division in almost a decade, they finished a very creditable eighth in a 22-team league. To Shankly's chagrin, his local rival Harry Catrick's Everton won the title. Roger Hunt was again top scorer with 24 goals in the league, St John netted 19 times and Kevin Lewis a very respectable 10 times. With Peter Thompson arriving from Preston North End for £37,000, almost double Liverpool's previous record high fee for a transfer, Kevin Lewis's days were numbered. Despite scoring 10 goals in 19 games in the 1962-63 season and scoring 39 goals in 71 games for Liverpool in all, an average of better than a goal a game, he would be sold to Huddersfield during the summer break in 1963, Thompson having usurped his place. Lewis decided to retire from football at the very early age of 24 and went into pub management and is currently managing a country pub among the rolling hills of Staffordshire. It should be noted that the 1962-63 season was an unusual one. It was during the December of 1962 that a freezing fog descended over almost the whole of Britain shortly before Christmas and when it started snowing heavily on Boxing Day, it didn't really stop until after Easter. The country froze in temperatures regularly as low as minus 20 degrees centigrade, and under snowdrifts often as much as 15 feet deep. Getting to work for the British was near impossible, or school, or playing football, utterly impossible. Many groundsmen found their pitches were as much as six inches deep in solid ice. The Mersey, the Thames, the Clyde and the Tyne were all frozen over in places, even parts of the Channel, often for weeks, even months on end, and in Blackpool, the team gave up on training and quite literally went ice skating on the pitch instead. It was after this hellish winter that clubs first started investigating the technology of undersoil heating. British Rail had been getting rid of its steam trains and introducing the all-new diesel-electric range. Suddenly, with the onset of this violently cold winter, the old steam trains got a reprieve ahead of the scrapyards as no one had thought to equip any of the new diesels with fittings to take snowplows. This was the year that, with coupons blanked with postponed matches, Vernon's, Littlewoods and Zetters invented and introduced the pools panel. It was also that winter that I first met my new adoptive family, when my case officer, unfamiliar with the city, and driving around with a child in the back and not wanting to get lost or stuck in the snow, agreed to beat my dad at a local landmark. And so it was to be that on a snowy Saturday on the 16th of February 1963, I met my dad-to-be for the first time in the snow-covered old car park at Anfield where Liverpool were beating Wolves 4-1. Hearing the cheers and the singing emanating from behind the high walls in a huge swell in the swirling snow, I was hooked for life.
With the addition of Peter Thompson on the left and Callaghan now established on the right, feeding St John and Hunt, ably supported by Stevenson and with Lawrence replacing Fennell in goal, his Colossus run Yates solid in the centre of defence, with Milne, Byrne and Moran all driving and yet solid at the back, Lawler and Smith waiting their turn, Shankly, Paisley, Fagan and Bennett reassessed their targets and priorities. Despite a weather-decimated season, despite the teething problems of being in the highest league, a small spate of injuries, losses in form and a steep learning curve, Liverpool had survived, better than survived. Against the odds of the weather and the pundits, they had finished eighth. They had scored 71 goals for and 59 against. That had to change. With the upgraded team, they were sure that could be done. A season where they could beat the then mighty Tottenham, 5-2 at home, and yet only three days later lose to the same side, 7-2 away, despite this being in an appalling weather and sensitifying run of six games in 12 days, must not be repeated. All through the summer of 1963, the boot room throbbed with planning, strategy meetings, training programmes and long discussions on ways and means. When the players returned from their short break, somewhat rested and happy to pick up the reins, they found a new intensity to their training a new sense of purpose among the staff. To his captain, Bill Shankly made the season's target clear. Ruddy, I'm not having Everton win the title again, and the best way to stop them is to win it ourselves. As Shankly looked on from the sidelines at Melwood, watching the players gear up for the 1963-64 season, the die was cast. Well, that's it for this episode of Jumpers for Goalposts, and I hope you've enjoyed it and maybe learned more about our club and city and the times they grew through. Next time, we'll take a look at the two most arguably important years in the modern history of the club, the 1963-64 and 1964-65 seasons. Until then, it's cue the music and see ya! Network.